all that much new to say anyway, you know. (laughs) You could all probably get up here and say the same old things that you've heard at a lot of retreats. Tonight as I speak, now in the middle of the retreat, listening to you as the retreat has gone on, the days pass, I sense for most people a deepening of the retreat. And a deepening doesn't mean, oh, now samadhi is great, great visions, concentration, and so forth. A deepening means a greater intensity of judgment, or grief, or suffering, or joy, or openness. For some, a day of ecstasy followed by a day of disappointment, followed by a day of something else but somehow a deepening of experience of all kinds for most people. Then people wonder, well, how should I evaluate my practice? How do I know if it's going well? And it's not a workshop for self-improvement. I mean, it just isn't. It's not how it works. You've Some of you have heard the story of a friend who came up to ask about five or six other community members who were sitting the three-month course one year and asked, well, how is Mary doing in her retreat? And I said, well, she's gone up and down a lot. She's doing pretty good. Well, how is uh, John doing? Hmm. Doing pretty good also. How is uh, Roger doing? Roger's gone through quite a lot in this city. He's doing good. And I answered that way for about four or five people. Finally, they looked at me. They said, what do you mean when you say somebody's doing good? What does that mean? And I had to think about it because it was just sort of an automatic response. And I thought, and then I said, it means they haven't left yet. And I was serious. (laughs) There's a deeper way to understand what we're doing here than some evaluation you might have in your mind. I recently taught with a good friend and a very wonderful uh, teacher, uh, Joanna Macy, in uh, Sacramento. We did something together. And Joanna and her husband, Fran, had come back a few weeks before from working in the city closest, the the inhabited city closest to Chernobyl in uh, Ukraine. Nova somethingsk. I don't know exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And she talked about it and I'll tell you, it was very hard to listen to. She said that area has beautiful hills and mountains, maybe later going down, if you look at you know, the geography of Russia, ending up in the Caucasus eventually. And beautiful forests filled with old, ancient trees, and the villagers there for centuries, for thousands of years, the people love to take walks in the forest and pick mushrooms and bring their children into the forest and cut wood and hunt game and so forth. It was really their life. 
Well, in this town of 50,000 people, those who have returned all live in their apartments with foam seals around the bottom of their doors and around their windows. Then they go to their work with seals around them and they cannot go into the forests. They have pictures of the forest on their walls. So she did a two-day or three-day workshop of despair and empowerment with the mayor and the counselors and various other teachers from the city and so forth, those who gathered with her. And they really talked about how bad it was to be back there, the kind of fears they had. She had to probe them and kind of work to elicit it. They didn't want to talk about it very much. And after a day and a half of doing this, some people got very angry at Joanna and said, why the hell have you come here to make us talk about this shit, about this pain? Why are you making us feel this? Because it came after a question she asked the mayor. She said, how long will it be before you can go into your forests? And he said, not in my great-grandchildren's lifetime and not in their great-grandchildren's lifetime. How can you come here and make us have to talk about that and look at that? Why are you making us feel this pain? And being a wise person, Joanna didn't answer. She just sat with that question and that anger from several people. And finally one person spoke up and said, so that we can tell our children that at least we were willing to talk about the truth. We were willing to face the truth. And another person spoke up and said, so that we can bear witness to this as a sentinel for others, so that we can warn others on this earth, do not let this happen to your forests, and do not let this happen to your children and their children. Meditation is a roller coaster. And in some way, we talk about the development of concentration and mindfulness and faith and all these things that may grow in it. But in truth, we can't measure it in time because we're not going someplace trying to make ourselves some new kind of person. How will you know when you've gotten there? Who have you met that you can measure your own unique life by? Where we're going is what is timeless. It can't be measured. As Sansanim again, the Zen master said, once a great man sat under this Bodhi tree, saw the morning star and was enlightened. He absolutely believed his eyes, his ears, his nose, his tongue, his body. The earth is brown, the sky is blue. And where we're going is where we are.
Where we're going is to awaken the wisdom and the great compassionate heart of a Buddha just where we are. Where else could it be? In that way, we could call this practice honoring or bowing to what is. It's not improvement and it's not going to fix you or the world. When I was at Ajahn Chah's monastery in the forest, first began to practice there, as a monk, we did a lot of bowing. We would bow three times, put your head on the floor, and you came in the big Dharma hall, in the Buddha hall, to the Buddha. Bow three times when you left. Bow three times to the teacher when you sat near him. Bow three times when you left. Bow before you eat. And then at some point, I asked, um, what else is appropriate here? He said, well, strictly speaking, one should bow to one's elders as a monk. I said, fine, who are my elders? And he said, anyone who is ordained before you, which means everybody, right? (laughs) All of them. So every time I met an elder, which is someone who ordained even the day before I did, get down on my knees in the dirt and bow. And sometimes they were beautiful, worthy people in my eyes. And sometimes they were, to use Rodney's term last night, they were people who seemed like schmucks to me. It was some young village guy who ordained the month before me for a two-month period to please his parents and didn't care less about the teachings of the Buddha, but was doing it in some ceremonial way, and I had to get down on my hands and knees in the dirt and put my head on the ground at his feet. So I was doing that and noticing some resistance at times. (laughs) (laughs) And then I began to be aware of the pain of that resistance, just how it was, and realized that bowing that I was going to be bowing anyway, that there must be something there to bow to. And I'd go and look at different people, say, what is beautiful in them? Or what is worth bowing to in this person? Look for that in each person. And I got, instead of resisting it after a while, I got to love bowing. And I would bow when I went in my hut and bow when I left, and bow before I entered the toilet and bow after I left. I would, anything that moved, I would bow to it. And that's really part of what the practice is about. There's a great Mahayana text called the Avatamsaka Sutra that describes all the possible kinds of universes, those made out of stone and those of fire, those of clouds and rock and rainbow light and flowers. And in each of these there arises a Buddha. And they have beautiful names, the Buddha of radiant joy and the Buddha of all-embracing wisdom and the Buddha of blissful freedom and the Buddha banner of compassion. There's names for all these Buddhas. And in each of these universes, the Buddhas teach the same Four Noble Truths. The truth of suffering, which is called in other places the truth of no satisfaction or the truth of loss of life or the truth of sorrow of taste, or the truth of dark repetition, goes on and on. And in each of these worlds, the cause of suffering is described. The truth of waywardness, the truth of misperception, 
the truth of entanglement by ropes, the truth of taking the wrong path, the truth of enchantment, all the cause of suffering. And then all speak of the truth of freedom, called the third noble truth, the truth of nirvana, the truth of timeless delight, the truth of open-ended clarity, the truth of thankful release. So we sit and walk, paying attention moment to moment, and our task is to see what is, what is true, and to bow to that as it is. The first noble truth of the Buddha, the Buddha said, there is one thing the not seeing of which keeps us constantly bound in the whirlwind of samsara of entanglement. And that is not seeing and accepting the truth of suffering. The four great oceans are less than the tears we have shed on this way of birth and death so many times. But we don't like to look at it so much, do we? Especially in this culture. A pin shall prick thy finger, and thou shalt feel it not. Thy tooth shall be extracted, and thou shalt be anesthetized. Thou shalt be bitten by a mad dog, and injected with serum, and the dog be shot, and neither of you feel any pain. Thou shalt pass a bundle of rags, who cries, Give me a quarter, I am homeless and thou shalt be anesthetized and pass on. Thou shalt be in the antechamber of the hospital awaiting birth or death, and peruse the news of the world on the screen before your eyes, famine in Central Africa, latest fashion bikini leaves no strap marks, dioxin, diet cookbook, film star of the year, neo-Nazi outbreak, assassination of the year. And no one thing shall be better or worse, and thou shalt ingest them all with the painless, smiling, same feeling of, have a nice day. Have a nice day. the first noble truth. So as we sit, it's not to change things in the world, although we can certainly respond in many ways, but first it's just to face the human realm. The five million children who live on the streets in Brazil, or the destruction in Yugoslavia, Sarajevo, Not since the Saracens in the Holy Roman Empire was Sarajevo as brutally attacked as now. And even there, they didn't destroy the city. So many people killing one another. The truth of our inner cities, and it's not far away, the New York City Teacher of the Year condemned the school board for the sole murder of one million black and Latino children. Think of the things killing us as a nation, he said. Drugs, brainless competition, 
recreational sex, the pornography of violence, gambling, alcohol, and the worst pornography of all, lives devoted to buying things, accumulation for meaning. All are addictions of dependent personalities, and that is what our brand of schooling now inevitably produces. Now, there may be a way to feed the world, and I think we need to look to how to do that. But there is joy and sorrow and birth and death interconnected in the human realm. Even Lama Yeshe, this great, compassionate, enlightened teacher, when he was put in the hospital for a heart attack, wrote how incredibly difficult it was in the ICU. He said, after 41 days, it is as if I had become the Lord, my body, I'd become the Lord of a cemetery. My mind was that of an anti-god, and my speech like the barking of an old mad dog. This is someone who'd done some serious meditation in his time. It was very difficult, he said, to face death and all that came with real understanding and equanimity. And it took all his practice to come back to balance. Now, we might wish to escape from the contradiction of life. If we practice correctly, no more suffering, no more war, no more conflict, no more pain. But there is no way to escape from the contradiction of birth and death and joy and sorrow. Anybody ever escape from that? Night and day and up and down? It is by nature contradictory. Very difficult things. Abortion. Abortion is killing. It causes great sorrow to the mother and the child who is killed. No abortion is also terrible. When you're poor and you have six kids and not enough food to feed them and you're just barely trying to keep your own sanity, they make it black and white as if one way is better than the other. There is no good way. Here we heat this building with fuel oil. We drive our cars, we have this light, and all this kind of warmth and well-being that comes from fossil fuel. But we have to bomb Iraq back to the Stone Age in order to keep our oil supply and kill and maim 150,000 children under age 15 in that war. We have the incredible creativity of science and wonderful things that come from it, no doubt. Medicines, transportation, <coughs> great gifts. And we have the shame of being the nation that exports more weapons and killing machines than any other country has ever done on the face of the earth. We pay for our budget deficit. We pay for our oil by exporting weapons. We arm the world, and then we worry about wars. 
It's not just the suffering out there and those contradictions. And I don't know if war ever stops. I don't know in the human realm. And we can work for peace. God knows that we can do a better job. I don't know the answer. But we find it in ourselves, the war in our own body against our pain and our feelings and our thoughts, the contradictoriness, the jealousy, the fear, the planning, the grief we find. And it's not supposed to go away and we're not supposed to fix it. It's simply the first noble truth. Anybody not seen it? Then there's a second noble truth. But we don't really want to look so much at things. Here's a uh, description of actual statements found on insurance forms after the accidents of drivers trying to summarize how Uh, They got into the accident. Coming home, I drove into the wrong house and collided with a tree I don't have. (laughs) I collided with a stationary truck coming the other way. A pedestrian hit me and went under my car. The guy was all over the road. I had to swerve a number of times before I hit him. I pulled away from the side of the road, glanced at my mother-in-law, and headed over the embankment. (laughs) I had been driving for 40 years when I fell asleep at the wheel and had an accident. My car was legally parked as it backed into the other vehicle. I was sure the old fellow would never make it to the other side of the road when I struck him. (laughs) The telephone pole was approaching. I was attempting to swerve out of its way when it struck the front end. So we don't want to look very much at really what it is. The second noble truth is really the end of denial. We see what's true. And we see that the more we fight with what's true, the more greed for holding something that will change, the more aversion and hatred, the more delusion, the more we suffer. The more the world suffers, the more attachment, the more we suffer. Ajahn Shah said, it's simple. It's like a little light on the dashboard. If you're suffering, look and see. There's a, you know, there's those little idiot lights and then there's a little wire connected. If you're suffering, it means there's attachment. It's that simple. Lighting up suffering, suffering, oh, must be attached someplace or other. Territoriality, struggle, wanting it to be some other way. We could fight, we could run away, we could be depressed and hopeless, but instead we are asked to bow to what is true to honor what is true. The third noble truth is the truth of freedom, of rest in the midst of these things. The possibility of awakening the great heart of the Buddha, of awakening to that which is fearless or timeless. To find, as Suzuki Roshi Roshi spoke of, to find your composure in the midst of all things, 
is to enter nirvana. Now, what would it mean to bow to the truth? You know, when we practice, if we're having a hard day and we're suffering, our body hurts, our mind's wandering, there's loss, there's grief, there's all the kinds of suffering you could well describe, we think we're doing it wrong. Must be some mistake. This practice isn't working. But actually, that's called insight. It is. It's simply seeing things as they are. So we bow to the first characteristic of the three that Buddha spoke of. We bow to dukkha, the inevitability of sorrow or pain as a part of life, as death is. All things are just the way they are. We fight with them, as I said. Here's Ajahn Chah. He said, we human beings are constantly at combat, at war, to escape the fact of being just this much. But instead of escaping, we continue to create create suffering, waging war with what is good, waging war with evil, waging war with what is too small, waging war with what is too big, waging war with what is too short or too long or right or wrong, courageously carrying on the battle. To bow to dukkha is just to see things as they are, to experience the world as it is, with its birth and death and joy and sorrow, and to let ourselves sit in the midst of the human realm with our eyes open and our heart open. Read you a poem. It's from a school teacher in New Jersey called a prayer for children. We pray for children who sneak popsicles before supper, who erase holes in math workbooks, who throw tantrums in the grocery store and pick at their food, who like ghost stories, who can never find their shoes. And we pray for those who stare at photographers from behind barbed wire, who can't bound down the street in a new pair of sneakers, who were born in places We wouldn't be caught dead who never go to a circus. We pray for children who sleep with the dog and bury the goldfish, who bring us sticky kisses and fistfuls of dandelions, who get visits from the tooth fairy, who hug us in a hurry and forget their lunch money. And we pray for those who never get dessert, who have no safe blanket to drag behind them, who watch their parents watch them die, who can't find bread even to steal, who don't have rooms to clean up, whose pictures aren't on anybody's dresser, whose monsters are real. We pray for children who spend all their allowance before Tuesday, who shove dirty clothes under the bed and never rinse out the tub, who don't like to be kissed in front of the carpool, who squirm in church and scream in the phone, whose tears we sometimes laugh at and whose smiles can make us cry. And we pray for those whose nightmares come in the daytime, who would eat anything, who have never seen a dentist, who aren't spoiled by anybody, who go to bed hungry and cry themselves to sleep, who live and move but have no life. We pray for children who want to be carried and for those who must, 
for those we never give up on, and for those who don't get a second chance, for those we smother, and for those who will grab the hand of anybody kind enough to offer it. So we sit here and we touch our own sorrows, our loneliness, the fleeting things that we cared for that disappear, the diseases that come in our own body, the aging that happens that we all face. And we're asked to bear witness like that poem to all of it, to acknowledge it, to see what is true in the world around us and ourselves, to sense it very directly in restlessness, in grief, to see the suffering that we create and to see that which is just so. It's said in the Tibetan tradition that the the great uh, Bodhisattva or Buddha Avalokiteshvara, the Buddha of compassion, practiced for so many eons and mahakalpas in order to free all beings from suffering. And he went to every realm, the heaven and the human and the hungry ghosts and the hell realms, and taught every being and freed them all. And then when he turned back to look after doing that, he saw that the realms that had just been emptied were again filling with new beings. And two tears rolled down his cheeks. And one tear turned into white Tara. One tear turned into green Tara. Tara is the Tibetan goddess of compassion, of infinite mercy. To see that even though we do all we can, still there is this sorrow. And the truth is that as your practice deepens, it's not that there's less suffering, but often there's more because your capacity to see that and your compassion deepens. That's the first characteristic. The second is impermanence. We see how much it changes. Our breath is long and short and deep and fast and then it stops and it's tight and it releases and we control it and we don't and it does everything. And the more closely we feel into our body, everywhere we pay attention, it begins to change. Pulsing, throbbing, tingling, moving, vibrating, hurting, opening. And then we feel our feelings, and there's joy and loss and judgment and happiness and sadness. And it changes day to day, hour to hour, moment to moment. We think, well, it's not supposed to be this way. Aren't we supposed to get somewhere in meditation? Now we are ready to look at something pretty special. It is a duck riding the ocean a hundred feet beyond the surf as he cuddles in the swells. There's a big heaving in the Atlantic today, and he is part of it. He can rest while the Atlantic heaves because he rests in the ocean. Probably he doesn't know how large the ocean is, and neither do you, but he realizes it. And what does he do, I ask you? He sits down in it. He reposes in the immediate as if it were infinity, which it is. 
That is religion, and the duck has it. How about you? (laughs) So we sit and it changes, just like the Milky Way every 10 million years revolves around the center of the galaxy. It's like we're on this Ferris wheel ride. Our star is two-thirds of the way out, and we go around every 10 million years, and our body changes. And we try to grasp it and control it and get out of change every way we can, and it doesn't work. There's a story of W.C. Fields. Did I tell that to you? He was a noted atheist, didn't believe in any of that stuff, but there he was lying on his deathbed in the hospital, probably owing a lot of money, whatever. And a friend came in to visit him, and saw him reading the Bible, which he quickly closed and shut and stuffed under his bed. And he said to him, I thought you were an atheist. Did I see you reading the Bible? W.C. Fields looked up and he said, just looking for loopholes. (laughs) We think that somehow if we do it right, it won't change. There won't be loss. There won't be change in our life. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, perceiving in all our senses. The more we pay attention, the more we sense ourselves as a river of life. Everything changes. Our perspective changes. There's a famous, one day we like it, another day the same thing we liked we hate. You know, try eating any of your favorite food for six meals in a row. Go ahead. See what happens. It's a famous psychological experiment in which three buckets are filled, one with ice water, one in the middle with neutral room temperature water, and one with hot water that you can just barely stand. And then the graduate student subject, as usual, (laughs) is brought in and asked to plunge their hands into the two buckets on either side, the hot bucket just barely can hold it, and the ice-cold bucket. And leave their hand in for 30 seconds or so, about as long as they can. Then they pull their hands out, and they place them both in the bucket in the middle, room temperature water. And their facial expression goes kind of strange, and their eyes cross, because the hand that was in the hot water feels that bucket to be really cold. And the hand that was in the ice water right next to it in the same water feels that bucket to be very hot. Their hands are in the same place. And yet one is telling them that it's cold and the other is telling them that it's hot. Which is true? Suzuki Roshi, when asked to sum up all the teachings of Buddhism in a simple way, said, I can do it in three words. Not always so. How's that? Not always so. Whatever it is, not always so. And to bow to impermanence is just to honor that this is true. Things we love disappear. Things we hate also disappear. Then they come back, you know, in some way. There's a story of a... (laughs) There's a story of an old couple who went to visit some friends in California who lived near a great big racing track. And they'd never had anything to do with that, but they went to watch and they got a little bit interested. So the man said, well, I'm going to go to the track and do some betting. It just looks kind of exciting. And his wife said, have a nice day, dear, whatever. And he went, he took $2 just to make a $2 bet, see how he went. Well, he bet on one of the 
kind of long shot ponies, you know, the hundred to one odds, and it won. And he got quite a bit of money, and then he bet another long shot, and he went through the day. At one point, he had $53,000. Really, very intuitive. He said, one more bet before I go home. Put it on this last dog, as it were, this last pony. And it came in third. Pretty good, but he was betting for it to win. Lost all the money. Went back home, finally walked back. And his wife said, well, how was it at the track? Did you have a nice day? How did you do? And he said, I lost the two dollars. <laughs> that's really how it is, you know. I mean, you start with something and that's it. So to bow to impermanence is to honor moment after moment, day after day, that this is true. No matter how we are or think, this is what's true. And then the third characteristic is selflessness, emptiness, the openness, the unfixability of ourself. We're not separate. You know the story of Mullah Nasruddin when he goes into the bank to cash a check and they say, could you please identify yourself? So he pulls out of his pocket a small mirror, looks in and says, yup, that's me all right. (laughs) We are who we think we are. Is what, is what we believe about ourselves, But it's really a mirage, a dream. And we don't have much control over who we are. We just have these thoughts, I'm this kind of person or that kind of person. you know. And the more that we pay attention, the more we sit here and feel it breathes itself. Our thoughts come of their own. Do you control your thoughts? Well, do you control your feelings? Well, do you control your body? Is it yours then, if you can't tell it what to do? Say, all right, I'm not going to grow old. Try that. Does it listen? I'm not going to think. Does it listen? It owns itself. It has its own self-nature. There is no one who possesses it. It also arises out of nowhere. Where do those thoughts come from? The void. Where do they go to? (laughs) Disappear. How about your moods, feeling happy or sad, grief, joy? Comes for a while, then where does it go? Back into the void. Back with George Washington and the Holy Roman Empire and the pyramids and all that. Things appear, 1980, 1990, 1992. For a little while they do their dance and then go on. Think, well, this is me. It must be, you know, I control myself. It's my body and mind. Where did, uh, here's the way Gandhi put it, he said at one point. I have only three enemies, said Gandhi. My favorite enemy, the one most easily influenced for the better, is the entire British Empire. My second enemy, the Indian people, I find far more difficult. If you've never been to India, you don't understand that so deeply. But my most formidable opponent is a man named Mohandas K. Gandhi. With him I seem to have very little influence at all. <laughs> so we don't own it. We don't possess it. It's, not, it's one way now and tomorrow it's another way. And it's not ours. 
And what we're asked to do is to open to see that that's true, that our life is an ever-changing process. And certainly like a garden, we can plant certain seeds, we can nourish or water beautiful things within us and hope that they will grow. But that's about the best. It's not ours. You don't own this body, you rent it for a while. Your mind even less. You can't grasp it or fix it. And the more deep meditation, deeply you open, the more you see how ungraspable it is. So then, how do we respond to this truth of suffering, of impermanence, of selflessness? One response is despair. I'm afraid, it's terrible, it's overwhelming to retreat from it. Or another is to look for something really good, to find something pleasurable or excellent or fine within us, and then see if we can hold it. So that's the thing that happens. You sit and things are difficult and either you try to resist it and hope it will go away, or something terrific comes and you go, oh boy, now let's see, how did I get that? I sat that way, I had a drink of water before I sat, I breathed like this, maybe I can get it to stay a little longer. And it's like holding your breath, you know? But what happens after a while? It gets really tiring trying to make anything come back over and over again. So we can't retreat from it because it will follow us. It's like Nasruddin said. One point he was with some friends and he said, you know, I caused a whole tribe of bloodthirsty Bedouins to run one time. And his friend said, how did you do that? And he said, it was simple. I ran and they ran after me. (laughs) If we run away, it will go with us. If we try to hold on to it, we really can't hold anything. We just tie ourselves in knots. What we are asked to do is to bow to what is here just now, to honor the truth of it. As Thoreau said, when a dog runs at you, whistle for him. What's here is what's here. You understand? Okay, this is my meditation. This is it. You want to know where the meditation goes? This is it. It's impermanent, it's suffering, it's unpossessable, it's selfless. And you are asked to have a quality that Alan Watts called to be like a courteous audience to say, yes, this is so, this is how it is. If you can do that, and you can with practice, that's what we do, you discover that each of these qualities, each of these characteristics, has within it a gift. As we open to each one, there is something new that is born. Out of suffering arises the grace of compassion. The Tibetans pray for it. They say in their practice, please grant me enough suffering so that my heart may truly open for compassion. Imagine that. Imagine asking for it. You know, it's like Rumi where he says, a certain priest, preacher, prays long and with enthusiasm for thieves and muggers that attack people on the street. He doesn't pray for the good, but only for these. Why is this? because they've done me such generous favors. Every time I turn back toward the things they want, 
I run into them. They beat me and leave me broken in the road, and I understand again that what they want is not what I want. They keep me on the spiritual path. That is why I pray for them. Those that make you return for whatever reason to the Spirit, be grateful to them. Worry about the others who give you, give you delicious comforts that keep you from your prayer. So in suffering, there comes the gift of awakening the heart of compassion. It's like Karmapa, this great Tibetan Lama who visited IMS at one point, one of the great teachers who does this black hat ceremony in which he becomes, he has this crown given to him a dozen lifetimes ago by the emperor of China. And when he puts this crown on and takes his crystal rosary and chants, Om Mani Padme Hung, as we did on New Year's Eve, he becomes the Buddha of infinite compassion. And normally he was like this 50-year-old baby, just this happy child. But when he put that on, his face became just filled with the most deep sorrow that I'd ever seen. His eyes would tear, and it was as if he really let himself look at the sorrow of every being in the world and prayed for their benefit. And then after the ceremony was over, he would put the crown back away and the crystal rosary away and again turn into this big joyful baby. Somehow in the suffering, as we bow to it, our heart can open to connect with all beings. I did a retreat with another Tibetan Lama recently, Ken McLeod. We were doing the practice of compassion where you breathe in the sorrows of the world to your heart and breathe out compassion. We'll do something like that as the retreat goes on in the metta. And then he was describing graphically the worst kinds of suffering and saying, breathe that in, breathe out compassion. And it was very hard because it was so graphic and so painful. And you could see, I was struggling, you could see everybody else there was struggling with this too. And then at one moment he said, I know this is difficult, but if you could, if you could breathe in the suffering of the world, and change the pain to compassion. If you could take away the sorrows of the world by breathing it in, who among you wouldn't do it? And it was an amazing moment because you knew that no matter how hard it was, you would do it. And that's the willingness to bear witness, like Joanna spoke of, to what is true that gives rise to this beauty in us. It is like Ramdas talked about when he was teaching service in Oakland last year, this whole long series of classes on service and working. There was a woman there who worked in Oakland, and she said every day she would go to work, and there was a homeless person on the street. And this particular man she would give money to, 50 cents a day. She'd been doing it for months. They had kind of a relationship because she would see him, and he'd wait for her. And as the class went on and Ramdas talked to her, talked to everyone, one point she got up and she said, you know, I learned something. She said, I realize though I give him money, I never really look at him. And I was trying to figure out, she said, why it is that I don't look at him. 
And then it came to me in the meditation in this class. And I realized that if ever I really looked into his eyes, within that very week, he would be living in my living room, in my house. So the gift that comes from our bowing to suffering is our connectedness and our compassion when we face it with every being that lives. In impermanence, there's also a gift. And that is that no matter how good it is, or no matter how bad it is, it will change. Because it is infinitely, amazingly creative and abundant. And we think we know how it is for a moment. And then something else happens. Michelle, who teaches here, used to be a school teacher for little kids. And she said one day she took her first grade class out because they were really interested in death. They saw dead bugs and dead animals. And kids, they're not afraid of it. They want to find out. What's, you know, what did I get myself born into? They're curious. So they went out in the woods and they collected everything they could that was dead. Leaves, old dying mushrooms, old pieces of trees. Um, shells from snails that had died, parts of skeletons, bones that they found. They made a big pile of all this stuff. And the kids were really excited to look for dead stuff. So they sat around with all this dead stuff and looked at how the forest was dying, the leaves and all this. And then she asked them, what did they think about dying and death? She said, "What, what do you think would happen if there wasn't death? And their little brain started to think about it and said, well, there'd be more and more trees and more and more things and it would get fuller and fuller and fuller and there'd be no room for us. So that as everything dies, it makes room for something new to be born. I want to be thoroughly used up when I die, said George Bernard Shaw, for the harder I work, the more I live. I rejoice in life for its own sake. Life is no brief candle to me. It is a sort of splendid torch which I've got hold of for the moment and I want to make it burn as brightly as possible before handing it on to the next generation. There is this amazing fountain of creativity and surprise. Every million years there's all these new species that are born. God's saying, all right, let's try another kind of animal this shape or another kind of creature or another kinds of flowers. Incredible possibilities. When I worked in the Cambodian refugee camps, I saw this. There are these people in these little tiny huts six feet long by four feet wide, on a dry, barren plain in the rice paddies, who had lost members of their family, destruction of their villages, very, very difficult. And each hut had outside the door a little bit of land before the next hut. There was a path to the door, and then there was a square about one yard wide by half a yard. That was it. And these people had been in these huts for six months, four months. In most of those little squares was a garden. 
And they would go in the hot sun with a bamboo pole and walk all the way across the, the camp to this pit well that was dug by a bulldozer and wait in a half hour long line in the blazing sun and walk way down to the bottom of the pit well and get two buckets of water, walk back up, the whole thing probably took an hour, and bring their buckets back and water a little squash plant and a bean plant and a few things. And you could see that even in the midst of the bleakness of that place, there is a force in every being of life that wants to be born, that wants renewal a fountain of life that is also who we are. Read you a passage. Talks about this in a very different way. Comes from Kurt Vonnegut. Now we have all these different notions of how to solve the problems of the world and what their causes are. Well, in this particular scene in one of his novels, the man sitting there late at night watching an old World War II movie, and somehow the movie gets put on backwards. This is what he sees. American planes full of holes and wounded men and corpses taking off backwards from an airfield in England. Over France, a few German fighter planes fly up at them backwards, suck bullets and shell fragments from them, from the planes and crewmen. They did the same for wrecked American bombers on the ground, and these planes flew backwards up to join the formation. Then the formation flew backwards over a German city that was in flames. The bombers opened their Bombay doors, exerted miraculous magnetism which shrunk the fires, gathered them into cylindrical steel containers, and lifted the containers into the bellies of the planes. The containers were then stored neatly in racks, but there were still a few wounded Americans, though, and some of the bombers were in bad repair. Over France, German fighters came up again and made everything and everybody as good as new. When the bombers got back to their base, the steel cylinders were taken from the racks and shipped back to the United States, where factories were operating day and night, dismantling the cylinders, (laughs) separating the dangerous contents into minerals. Touchingly, it was mainly women who did this work. The minerals were then shipped to specialists in remote areas. It was their business to put them back into the ground, to hide them cleverly, so they would never hurt anybody ever again. (laughs) For the raindrop joy is in entering the river. Unbearable pain becomes its own cure. Travel far enough into sorrow and tears turn into sighing. When, after heavy rain, the storm clouds disperse, Is it not that they've wept themselves clear to the end? In impermanence is the possibility of new birth, creativity, a whole new visioning of life. And finally, in selflessness, in not possessing the wisdom of insecurity, in being nothing, says Kalu Rinpoche, 
we are everything. As we empty of ourselves, we feel more and more deeply our connection with all things. Rodney tells the story in his hospice work of this man who was close to death. Two children there to care for him, and all of a sudden the phone rang. They answered it, and it turned out that this man's younger brother died in a car accident. So they're talking, should we tell him or shouldn't we? He's on his deathbed, he's near death. Maybe we should tell him it's his brother. Maybe we shouldn't. You know, let him have a peaceful death and not bother him. He's already got so much to deal with. Finally, they decided not to tell him. They went in the room with hospice workers as well. Good morning, Father. See him very, very sick, lying there. Finally, he looked at them and he said, Don't you have something to tell me? They said, What do you mean? He said, About my brother who died. They said, Well, how do you know? And he said, Oh, I've been talking to him. And then he called them to his bedside and finished his business with them, his children, and soon thereafter died. How could that be? You all have heard many stories like that. You know how it could be. Because being nothing, we are everything. We are interconnected. And so what we seek, the perfection, the wholeness, the awakening of the Buddha comes when we are here. The mystery of life is not a problem to solve, but a reality to experience. Light and dark and joy and sorrow are what it is. And when you experience it, when you open, this tremendous joy comes. This is from Alice Walker. She said, one day I was sitting quiet, and feeling like a motherless child, which I was. You all know that one. And then it came to me, that feeling of being a part of everything, not separate at all, and I knew that if I cut a tree, my arm would bleed. And I laughed, and I cried, and I ran all around the house. I just knew what it was. In fact, when it happens, you just can't miss it. There is a kind of opening that can come to us. What we're asked to do here is a very deep thing, which isn't to change ourselves, but to give ourselves to our life, to practice with continuity and care, bowing, opening. It's really like being in labor. If you've ever had a child or been there for childbirth, it's a birth of your life, a birth of yourself, over and over, letting go to what is. First individually, St. John of the Cross says, If you wish to be sure of the road that you tread upon, you must close your eyes and walk in the dark. Just letting yourself be there, moment after moment, not knowing where you're going, because it really doesn't matter. Wherever you're going, it's going to change, and it will have joys and sorrows, and you won't possess it. And it will ask your deep compassion. To do this is to discover a perfection that's not the perfection of the world, but the perfection of your love. And all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. It's to awaken the great wisdom and heart of the Buddha, 
in every circumstance. To practice in this way, and you're asked to do it, to really give yourself sincerely, it, it only shines when you surrender, when you do this moment after moment after moment. Then you come to freedom. Shanti Deva says, as a blind person feels when they find a pearl in a dustbin, so I am amazed by the miracle of Buddha nature that arises in the darkness of my own consciousness. It is the nectar of immortality that delivers us from death, the treasure that lifts us above poverty into the wealth of giving to life, the tree that gives shade to us when we roam about scorched in the desert, the bridge that takes us across the stormy river of life, the cool moon of compassion that calms our mind when it's agitated, the sun that dispels darkness, the butter made from the milk of kindness by churning it with the Dharma. This is a feast of joy to which you all are invited. 